Hello and welcome to Plain Talking. In this edition, we'll hear from a pioneering Yorkshire farmer, find out some fascinating research about the way families read the Bible, and the Reverend David Jardine will tell us about a giant of the faith. Dennis Fell runs Den Home Care Farm in East Yorkshire, an initiative that brings town and country together in an extraordinary way. I chatted with Dennis about the farm and also his views on the government's recent white paper on a national food strategy. But I began by asking him how we got the idea for the care farm in the first place. At the start of the millennium, I was working in publicity and training for the Samaritans. And I was involved in something called the East Yorkshire Rural Stress Initiative with East Yorkshire Council. And we hosted a day at the farm media launch to just highlight the pressures that farmers and people in the country are under. And uh, we had a number of uh, signposts that we could signpost people to, but I was left a little bit dissatisfied from a farming angle something that farmers could really get the teeth into and make a difference to their lives. And I thought, well, if I might digress a bit to that, you, you'll probably know the allegory of the long spoons. I don't know whether you know that, Gethin. Dennis, I think you should remind me if, if I forgot. <laughs> because... <laughs> well, somebody came to the farm and he said, well, this sums up what's happening. It, it's about a gentleman who, who goes to visit heaven and hell. So he goes and uh, goes down this corridor and sees this door and it says hell. So he knocks on, opens it, and he sees these people round a massive bowl of soup. And all they've got is long spoons. And what they're doing, they're trying to bat each other's spoons and hit each other with a spoon. So it stops each of them getting the soup up to the mouth. And if they did try, they spilled it over the shoulder. And they were really miserable. And he shut the door quite quickly and walked further down the corridor to this door marked heaven. And there was peace and smiles, just the same scene that as far as the soup in the middle and people had sat round and they were using the long spoons to feed each other, just reaching across and, uh, you know, helping each other. So my idea was, yeah, farmers under pressure and probably no more under pressure uh, than at times such as now. But mm. well, if they could get our minds off ourselves, the finances, the politics, the, maybe the personal health issues, onto the needs of others, then that lightens your load and it lightens their load. So that, that was kind of some of the mm. founding philosophy behind it, that it's, it's a mutual benefit. Well, that was back in the, the kind of turn of the millennium, Dennis. Here we are now, 2022, and you've gone from strength to strength by the sounds of things. Yeah, well, I mean, I have to admit, I've got an absolutely fantastic staff team that's come along board. Different individuals bringing different talents. I mean, I've got to single out my eldest daughter. Obviously, I have a special love for my eldest daughter, but she's done her doctorate in how care farms such as ours can play a, a very helpful, active role as an alternative curriculum for particularly secondary school pupils who are not thriving at school, possibly expelled and uh, behavioural difficulties. And, and that's something which we now specialise in, working with schools to provide that extra dimension there for pupils who do not like being within the four walls and a desk and other members of staff. 
bringing their own education and talents and it's working really, really well. And in fact, I'm just provide the practical things, really. I'm just a farmer. So thank you. Yeah, it's, it's really has developed thanks to the staff. I mean, picking up on, on that kind of scenario, Dennis, so a group of school children who, for one reason or other, may be in trouble at school. So they, they come to the farm. What, what is it they do? What do you, what do you put them to do on the farm? We will assess them initially as to what they like to do. Obviously, we have to respect confidences, but I'll give you a case, maybe a young man at a school for behavioral difficulties, and we will often be at the stage that we're thinking, dare we take this on? You know, it sounds such a, a dodgy thing and maybe violent outbursts, but what we generally find is the young man, or it could be a young woman, will come to the farm and the first words will be, Excuse me, and I'm quoting here, what the <laughs> am I doing at this farm? <laughs> That's probably the first words. Yeah. But we try and make them feel comfortable. And, you know, do they like working with animals? Do you like plants? Do you like machinery? Mm. And yes, it does take some time for them to settle in. Mm. But we have a young man now, for instance, been with us two years. He'll actually like a job at the farm. He's a pastor all the requirements to go to the local agricultural college. Hmm. And it's from, you know, the center of Hull, not a place you usually find hmm. farming aspirations. Hmm. So it does work, obviously not with everyone, but it's just that building of self-esteem and, and yeah, just camaraderie. I mean, it blows me away sometimes to see some of our staff working with these individuals. What a transformation. We, we've talked about your farm is actually a farm as well. So you, you, it sounds like a major aspect of your work is, is this kind of care farm, but you, you are also a commercial farm. That's uh, right. Yeah. Like so what, what, what kind of farm are you? We're mainly arable, we're growing crops, but because we're organic, we rely heavily on, on sheep to build up fertility. Hmm. So, uh, we're arable and sheep. Our main crop is wheat which hopefully in a good season will go for bread for well, well, which leads me on really to a, a kind of a greater subject, if you like, which is to do with the UK government's strategy or the white paper that's recently been published, uh, had, had a lot of publicity in the last few weeks regarding food production and consumption and the health of the nation. And as a farmer, I'm wondering, how do you look at things post-Brexit and post-COVID and with the war in Ukraine? What kind of future are we facing in the UK in terms of food production? Well, right now, I think the word to sum it up, uh, food production right across the board, it's extremely volatile and uncertain. Prices, particularly for farmers, I think the inflation rates somewhere between 25 and 30%. Because of the fuel, uh, because of feed and, and in particular fertilizer, nearly every farmer I've spoken to said, never known a time like this. It's very stressful. As far as the food strategy goes, I'm a bit low in the tooth as far as farming goes, but it seems roughly every five years or so, we get a new policy, a new way of looking at things as a result of maybe a, a new government or a, a war or a, some new policies, some crisis. And we just kind of get reasonably comfortable with one set of government guidelines. 
And then lo and behold, there's something else comes. And sorry, I hope I don't sound too cynical, but it, it's going to be a dickens of a job getting it all working together, a, a food strategy. But it needs to be done and it needs to all work together for the consumers and the farmers. Well, I, th I think there's been some disappointment about what, what isn't in this white paper. I think there was hope that there would be a little bit more about taxation on, I don't know, sugar, for example, and a bit more maybe about these kind of obesity levels that seem to be on the increase. So that I, I get the impression just a lot of pressure being put on the farming industry to somehow deliver something that um, may be very hard to deliver in the long run. A gentleman called Henry Dimbleby, the food star, as he was called, he published a report about a year ago. And as far as sugar and salts goes, he, he said there should be a tax. And we've got to break the cycle of uh, junk food being tasty. And of course, more people buy it because it's tasty. So the manufacturers manufacture more. So he said, you know, we've got to break this cycle and, and let's have a tax on sugar and salt. But in the uh, report that was published by the government, apparently there was very little, if anything, on sugar uh, and salt. So he was personally, I, I understand, very disappointed on that. Yeah, listen, I'm going to come back to to you and the farm and really kind of probe into your religious viewpoint, your Christian viewpoint, if you like. Because when I, when I think about farming, I wouldn't say it's my, my first thought, but I think of some of the parables of Jesus, many of which were to do with the land and soil and farming and that kind of rhythm. And I wonder for you, where does faith, if you like, how do you feel that expresses your faith in your work and life as a farmer? Oh, that's, that's a good question. I could be judged on this, but God's love given through his Holy Spirit in me, in you, causes you to have that compassion and you seek to reach out. So that's sort of the motivation behind the care farm, just the so much suffering and the burden. You know yourself with a farm, you've got the countryside, you've got animals, you've got that love that can benefit people. So the mission statement of the farm, if you like, is to share the farm with those who might benefit. It's basically taken from, I think it's Acts chapter 4, verse 32, when the, the first Christians shared all the goods together. So I just wanted to share the farm for those who may benefit, you know, not, not everybody will, but there have been many who have. So that's part of the faith. Another part of the faith is I believe this is God's creation. We, we need to care for it. The earth is so incredibly precious and beautiful. It's intricate and marvelous. And I'm really excited to be a farmer and, you know, we've got to care for it. You know, for years, I used to chuck chemicals at it, left, right, and center, and began to realize, well, you know, pesticides, we've got a group of three pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, insecticides, all with a means to kill things. So that's why I went organic, to show care. I mean, it isn't a pure solution, but it has that more of a caring aspect and looking after the planet. And we do quite a bit on uh, renewable energy on the farm, you know, with wind turbines, solar panels, biomass boiler to uh, counteract climate change. So I guess that's where my faith comes in. In the last podcast, I spoke with the Bible Society's Jack Imber Terry 
about their new family edition of the Bible, a whopping edition that also contains a compendium of games and resources. In this conversation, Jack uncovers market research that could change the way we all engage with the Bible. So Jack, I wonder, to start with, could you tell us what was the process behind the scenes, the stuff that had to happen for that to be published as it was? Yeah, thank you, Gethin. Um, I think one of the things that you know, I, I mentioned in the, when we previously spoke is that it was actually during creation of the Good News Bible, the Youth Edition, which again, obviously we worked with Youth for Christ on. And it was during that process that we were looking at sort of various research that Youth for Christ themselves had undertaken. So each year, Youth for Christ uh, undertakes a significant research project where they ask a thousand young people from all parts of the UK, predominantly those who are church, but including uh, multi-faith, multi-ethnicities, and uh, some that aren't churched at all. And there's got a variety of questions that they put to these young people around faith and spirituality. And one of the questions that's been asked uh, each year that they've done the research to these young people is what has the single biggest influence on your faith? And every year, emphatically, the answer is the same. And that is family, not the church, not Christian leaders, not youth leaders, not celebrities, not friends, it's family. And so we've got this amazing sort of uh, consistent data that's highlighting that we need to be engaging in faith talk. We need to be engaging in a spiritual discussion as a family, because that's going to have the biggest impact on the young people taking part in it. And, you know, equally it will have a profound impact on parents or those caring for young people. Then, and this was, I, I can promise you that we, we, we hadn't seen this research before we'd started a project. We were quite deep into the project itself, but then the National Institute of Christian Education and Research, also known as NICER, they produced the Faith in Nexus report, which is a hugely detailed document, 150 or 170 odd pages which is a deep exploration of young people's faith and education and, and how the two merge together. And that highlighted some really significant pointers to us. And I actually had a, a very excited email sent to me by Louise Wilcock from Youth for Christ, who was one of the, the core team members working on the Family Bible. And some of the information and data that came from that report, essentially, uh, not, not in as a direct way as, as we were doing, but highlighted the need for there to be family Bible engagement. It highlights the need for families to get together and to engage in faith talk and engage in the Bible. And that there was a desire for this to happen uh, with families. And there was a desire for this to happen from the church. But it also highlighted there were some really significant hurdles to overcome for that to even be something that was possible. One of those hurdles being a total lack of time which I think we can probably all relate to this idea that I don't have enough hours in my day as it stands, let alone trying to herd up my family to, to sit down and engage in the Bible together. Another uh, significant issue is that actually as, as parents, as people that care for young people, we tend to not feel qualified to have faith talk at home. We see the church as the experts. And if there's questions, we go to the church and we go to trusted theologians and, and actually this is a really significant issue and a significant barrier for people to overcome. What if I'm asked a question by my child or someone I care for, and I don't know the answer. I have questions myself around elements of the Bible. There's things I don't fully understand. There's questions I have. So how can I be qualified to lead faith talk at home? And that's a really significant issue for people. This idea that I'm not qualified for this. I'm not set up to be able to manage this. 
So in terms of addressing these issues in uh, with regards to time and addressing, uh, addressing the idea of not being qualified, I think we really had to sort of strip back this idea that the Bible is obviously an incredibly daunting book, a collection of books at the best of times. And as you point out, the Family Bible, the Phineas Bible Family Edition, when you initially look at it, it's a huge book and that can be quite intimidating for people. So right from the way that it's designed, the way it looks, the way it feels, the introductory pages and the video content that is immediately available through scanning QR codes that are printed throughout the Bible itself. All of that initial content is geared to helping just set the foundations and reassure the family that's engaging with it that this isn't a Bible that you can fail at. This isn't something that you can get wrong. It is not about trying to have all the answers. It's not about trying to put a pressure on that family. You know, we, we get so much pressure put on us uh, as parents, uh, as families. And I think sometimes there's this false perception that, uh, uh, you know, a Christ, what a Christian family, a good Christian family should be. And the truth of the matter is, with all the best intentions in the world, if we were to try and sit down every day to all read the Bible together as a family for an hour, it's not going to work. That won't work for most people. Maybe there are some out there, I don't know. Maybe there's some families out there that that's absolutely, you know, they, they think, yeah, easy peasy. But I think the, the reality for the vast majority of families out there is that that's not really realistic. And so what if you've only got five minutes? What if you've only got 10 minutes? What if you just end up watching one of the videos and then that leading to a discussion? What if it all goes completely wrong and it's complete chaos and someone's crying and, and you get disturbed by someone delivering something and it all, this is all just the reality. It doesn't matter. You just try again. And I think the purpose of the different types of interactions that are in the Bible, you've got, you know, video content, you've got journaling elements, you've got activities to actually do, you've, you've, you've got space and time to pause and reflect on what you've read. It's very intentional to have so many different types of interaction because naturally as a family, you're going to have people that will experience the Bible and benefit from reading it in different ways. So even within a family setup, you're going to have people who have drastically different things that will appeal to them in terms of how they engage with the Bible. So making sure there's a really broad breadth of content that allows everyone to benefit from it and everyone to feel like there's something in there for them was really important. The, the hope being that the more a family uses this Bible, the more they'll find their own rhythm on how to use this Bible. They will naturally gravitate to content that appeals to them and they will find their own way of engaging with it. And I mean, this idea of not being qualified, well, we say with this Bible, you don't need to be a, a, an expert on the Bible because you are the expert on your family. No one knows your family like you do. And that's what matters with this, not your depth of your theological knowledge. And finally, the Reverend David Jardine wants to tell us about Valerie. There's a woman in Belfast whom I keep in close contact with, especially over a matter spiritual. Her name is Valerie, and she worked with me for nearly 30 years in the healing ministry. I consider her a spiritual giant, and if I need any spiritual guidance, she's almost always the first person I go to. Her husband, Mercer, died 10 years ago. Valerie looked after him for the last three years of his life. For most of that time, Mercer was bedridden, but there was no one better looked after in the city of Belfast than he was. During that time, I visited often. Even though he was very unwell, Mercer loved a joke. And when I told him a new one, he couldn't wait until the carers came in so that he could share it with them as well. 
And all the time I spent with Valerie and Mercer, I realized the great relationship they had. Such was the love there was between them. I knew it was going to be a heavy blow for Valerie when Mercer died. And that is how it turned out. But she managed. And she told me later that after a few months, a turning point in the healing process came when God spoke to her. He said, Valerie, I want you to stop grieving for the fact that Mercer isn't with you anymore and start to praise me for all the great times you had together. She started to practice that, and that brought healing at a deeper level than she had known before. This is only one of many lessons I've learned from Valerie, which I quote regularly when I'm preaching. I said earlier that she is a spiritual giant. So it surprised me a few years ago, but she told me something that happened when her mother died. Valerie was in her mid-twenties, and the death of her mother hit her so hard that she was off work for seven years with depression. She spent most of that time at home, reading the Bible and developing her relationship with God in prayer. She emerged a different person. I asked her recently if that seven-year period after her mother died laid the spiritual foundation for the person she is today. She said that it did. And then I realized Mercer died 50 years after her mother. For years before his death, Valerie was an integral part of our healing team in a service in St. Finian's Church every Tuesday evening. When Mercer died, she only missed one Tuesday evening, and then she was back in her rightful place on the team the next week. She told me recently that she did wonder occasionally when Mercer was ill, would she slip back into depression when he died? But she didn't. Her faith held firm. A spiritual giant. How did she reach that stature? I believe the answer is very simple. She gave her life to Jesus. She spends as much time in prayer with him as she possibly can. And she invites him into everything. She worked with another member of the healing team in the Citizens Advice Bureau in a tough part of North Belfast. Every morning they came early for prayer. They prayed over every seat that clients would sit in that day. Is it any wonder that on more than one occasion they won the prize for the best Citizens Advice Bureau in the United Kingdom? I tell you about Valerie to encourage you that the growth she experienced is possible for any of us. But we will have to follow the same path. Give our lives completely to Jesus. Spend as much time as we can with him in prayer. And invite him into everything. Thanks for listening to this episode of Plain Talking. And look out for the next one coming soon. Plain Talking is sponsored by the Plain Truth magazine, a magazine of understanding. To find out more, please visit plain-truth.org.uk. Thanks for listening and God bless.